This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. What's up, party people? Another edition of Stark Reality, this time featuring my friend Lucian Samaha, a DJ, photographer, and somebody I've known for many years in New York City. Though he was born in Lebanon and was a flight attendant since he was in his early 20s and basically traveled all over the world taking pictures, he has over a million of them, plus uh, tons of vintage photography from flea markets, etc., and of course, as a DJ, he was uh, created the Mondo 107 party on the 107th floor of the World Trade Center. Was a Wednesday night hotspot until uh, 9/11. Unfortunately, of course, he also spun in the very large bathroom at the tunnel, circa 97, 98. Has a really cool bu- book of uh, vintage club ravers going there at the time. We talk about. Growing up in the Middle East, photography, the 90s lounge revival, DJing, getting old, politics, etc. And he gives us a nice eclectic home lounge playlist. This was recorded June 22nd, 2021. Enjoy. Check Cornelius. Like, like like we're checking out those uh Romanian uh <laughs> bosses of the bazaar. What do you call them? What's the name Barosan. Barosan. Barosan the Bazaar. Lucian uh Samaha, right? Is yes. How you say your name? Samaha, yeah. Samaha. A brunt of jokes in high school. Oh really? Why? Samaha ha 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 ha. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I've never heard that in all the years I've uh, heard you. Well, I guess, you know, we're past our juvenile years, but that's right. uh, pretty funny. Well, I'm writing my memoirs right now, so all this stuff is coming up. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm on like 35,000 words, and I'm only at age 14. Wow. This is going to be like a multi, multi, uh, multi-tomb multi book, basically. Well, I don't know. I mean, um, it could be, but it's also, I'm in a quandary right now as to, I'm like an open book. I'm telling everything. Not just about me, my family. There was a lot of dysfunction. There was violence. There was all sorts of things. And But there were also great people. So the way I'm approaching it, we all have a duality. So there's mom and dad, and they had their issues because of who they grew up with and who raised them. And that affected how they raised us. And uh, I was in boarding school I um, from a young age. In fact, my... Um, Memoirs start at the age of seven when I lunged at this other boy's legs so I could kiss them. And so it starts with perversion, basically, but it's not perversion. It's just the way nature was for me. So Right, right. So, But it kind of sets the stage as to how this book will be like, you know, if you get to chapter one or two and you haven't been bored or turned off by it, I guess. 
<laughs> so are you writing that then with that in mind is it's less about uh even talking about your own story well i mean you are talking about your own story but you are writing it in the in the vein of someone would want to keep reading it i guess of course i mean everything i've ever done has always been in consideration of the audience as well you know like um well when i was djing uh I played stuff and people liked it. And then somebody came and I was playing like, as you know, very specific stuff from the 60s and new things that were happening that were influenced by the 60s music, the the big bands, the easy listening and whatever. And then one day somebody came and because I was so eclectic, they asked me if I would play ZZ Top. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> At that's the top really of the lounge in the World Trade Center. And I was like, get the hell out of here. And then somebody else came in and it wasn't too extreme asked me if i would play madonna i'm like no way am i playing pop music at my party and then it happened over and over again and some people wanted to hear madonna like one time one time i popped madonna in and the place erupted i'm like okay if they like it well because i guess yeah i mean we should talk about you've you've done a, a number of parties but you had this whole wednesday party at windows on the world for some time and it was I think I subbed for you a few times and went up there many, many times, and you had all kinds of people playing up there with you and stuff. Uh, right. But that party was rocking. I mean, it's like obviously with 9-11 and all that stuff, everything literally was done, but uh, that was like a, a quite a sort of a hip spot, beautiful bar, you know, and whatever, obviously the view. But they actually had some good music. It could, they could have been like so much worse. And you had a great, you sort of carved out this niche where because it was such a beautiful setting that you kind of got people dancing to all kinds of stuff. I remember walking in there, you're playing some like Greek wedding music and everyone's like <laughs> going in circles. But then you'd play like Karmitsky Experience or just uh, totally underground stuff. And right. So it was like, yeah, that, what was the name of that? It was like Mondo something. What was the name of that? Mondo part? 107. Mondo 107. It was like enough fashioned after when i first started working there their p their, their pr person decided they would name the party and they called it strato lounge because it was in the stratosphere right right and it was kind of the lounge movement of the mid to you know late 90s that was going on the 96 97 and so i went on with it but then uh, that year i was invited to go dj in tokyo and i went there and there's this big store i think in shibuya or I don't remember, but it was a big CD store, like multi-level of music store. And they had a section called Mondo Suburbia. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's like hyper subgenre. <laughs> yeah. And it had some of the music that I like to play. And so I came back and I didn't I never did like Strato Lounge. So I proposed that we change it to Mondo because also there's these films from the sixties. Yes, exactly. Mondo Kane. Mondo, Mondo Kane, Mondo exactly. And all these yeah. things. And it's the World Trade Center, and Mondo means world in Italian. So it's perfect. And 107 is kind of like sort of a resonance of 007. So, but it was also the party was on the 107th floor. So Mondo 107 was a perfect name for the party. Um, and we, they agreed to let me you know, go with that. And so it became Mondo 107. Yeah, that, I mean, it's hard to explain, but I mean, that party was... I mean, you had like lines of people trying to get in yeah. to listen to, like I said, kind of like it was a eclectic mix of, you know, you'd throw them some stuff, but then you'd also throw them like underground lounge music and whatever. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where uh, because it was an international crowd, I would play music from various countries. 
um, and people loved it. I mean, they would they knew that at some point there would be the Italian set coming. Um, and I did a whole half hour of Brazilian music, and there was all sorts of music, and it was I loved researching, finding, plus I had a whole collection already myself because when I was a flight attendant in the 70s and the 80s, I used to go all over the world and the first thing I would hit would be record stores. Which is kind of convenient to just jump around all these places and then be there, you know, because that, that's half the time, you know, especially pre-internet too. Oh, yeah. no, You know, to get some of that stuff, a lot of that stuff, if it's not in the English language then you know it's unfortunate but then in america they're like well you know no one's interested in hungarian prog rock with but of course later when you're digging you're like of course we want those records right of course but half the time you either have to go to europe or go somewhere pre-internet to just get those records well i mean initially i was buying them for for the covers that's there was some great cover art i mean that's the lamentable part of of music today is you don't get all this other stuff you get with the music you just get to listen to it streaming (laughs) <laughs> but also the reason I was buying a lot of this easy, what they called easy listening, and a lot of people misnomer it as elevator music or like supermarket music, was uh, when we first moved to this country. That was big time. That was big time uh, uh, in the early 70s. I mean, you could still go to Woolworths and, and hear actual elevator music. Well, you heard Muzak, which Muzak, was a Muzak, lot of this exactly. albums that were made by session musicians that were great. Uh, very talented people, but they were also like doing covers of the Beatles and stuff like that. Yeah, it's schmaltzy, basically. Schmaltzy, but really good. And um, what? No, the reason I really got hooked on that music at an early age was that my father lived in Saudi Arabia. He was working for the airlines in Saudi Arabia. My my, my mom and dad. And when I went to visit, they had American friends that lived in this compound called Aramco, which is the largest oil company in the world. And you, you drove into the desert and you came into this town that was all like lawns and grass, as if you were like somewhere in Phoenix or something like that. Bizarre. And they had this couple of this friends, uh, this couple, Neville and Polly Robinson from like South Dakota or something. And he was like an engineer in the oil business um, but he was also a tinkerer, and he had like a VW Beetle in the, in the uh, in the driveway that he was taking apart and rebuilding as a dune buggy. <laughs> Hilarious. So this was my introduction to America before I'd even come here, and uh, they had like through their ranch house they had speakers in every room that were all piped in, and they all played this easy listening music. So to me, that was America, you know, like... That is amazing. So they would, you'd be here Mantovani or the 101 Strings or Liberace, you know, piped through the whole house. It was great. But at the same time, as a kid, my mom was a gambler and she would go to the neighbor's house to play cards every night and I could like sneak out and watch TV even though I wasn't allowed. And my favorite TV show was The Mod Squad. Also, that was to me sort of that duality of America, the easy listening part, like the really white you know, suburban thing, and the uh, these three hippies that became informers for the police. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's like, <laughs> it's kind of like the the ultimate informers in a way, because right, they I were know. like hippie police, But I, I love to watch it, because to me, that was kind of like, oh, that's America too. And at the end, there would be this, at every single episode, they would be, you know, how they have brought to you by... And there would be nothing after that because the Lebanese TV wasn't like accustomed to doing commercials. Like they were, they didn't have yeah, sponsorship. They, 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 they basically yeah. left a spot to put in right. commercial, but they didn't. But have it was a built spot. into the show. Oh yeah, yeah. And the funny thing, but also at, 
every Mod Squad episode ended with some sort of like a helicopter shot as it pulled away and it has a freeze frame of the three of them walking away in some dark parking lot at night after they've arrested the, the criminals kind of thing. <laughs> so to me, America was the Mod Squad with an easy listening background. <laughs> That is kind of like really funny to like your impressions before you even. Uh, it's oh, almost yeah. like postmodernism. Well, in a way, we had come as, on a sort of what you call it a re- recognizance trip because my father's brother lived in in Washington D.C. or a suburb thereof, and I remember we had to stop in Chicago somewhere and uh, at the airport, and I'm standing in front of those big flip screens, you know, that sh- the timetables that with the flipping thing the flipping things yeah yeah i love those i would love to have one of those but anyway in in front of me was this like really very american kind of guy fat shorts on straw hat and everything and then he let out this big fart and (laughs) i'm standing right behind him that's something you don't people don't do in the middle east somehow it's just like you don't fart in front of other people this guy had was just just let it rip right, right there you know <laughs> he didn't classic care. you're like the obnoxious americans like another uh an intro so to right speak. i mean so it was culture shock you know in fact that's where i'm writing right now about culture shock when my one of my very first best friends that i met at the german club in high school invites me to his house and i had never gone to an american person's house before um i was what like maybe six f- 15 or 14 at the time and we go and to this his is in house. the 70s, right? Because you moved here. Yeah, we're talking about 1972, actually, or 73. Yeah. And um, we go to his house, and he had long hair. You know, he was kind of like really cool and whatever. And <laughs> we go to his room, and it's all black light posters. Wow. Strobe lights, black lights. In 1973. 73. That's, that's amazing. Um, 73 or 74. And beaded curtains and all that. I mean, totally the whole the he whole. Was li- he was living shtick. it. Yeah, he was living it. And then he puts on a record. And then before he puts on the needle, he um, he puts on this mask, this full head mask that covered whole, of a gorilla face with like the hair and everything. And then puts on Frank Zappa and turns on the strobe lights. And here is this, this little immigrant from Beirut. <laughs> I'm going to freak this motherfucker out. Oh, he did. We became best friends. I mean, I mean, but that was the beginning of like my culturalization or inculcation <laughs> into American culture. <laughs> yeah, and you were you were a flight attendant for many years, right? Oh, long after that. Yeah, I mean, I was still, still talking about yeah. high school, but in '78, because I'm an airline brat, my father and like his five brothers were airline people. I couldn't wait till I became. Yeah, there's pictures of you, the classic kind of airline oh, yeah. shit from like the 70s, 80s, yeah, like absolutely. real classic like airline stuff. Well, I um, I was two years old when I was an unaccompanied minor. You know, like my father w- lived in Saudi Arabia, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I was living in Beirut with my right. mom's sister because they didn't want to take me to Saudi Arabia. Um, but he knew all the stu- he worked for an airline called Middle East Airlines, the Lebanese airline, and he knew all the stewardesses. Although I always say that my mother would use another word besides new, the stewardesses. <laughs> <laughs> oh snap. Uh so um they would he would tell them I'm coming and they would wait for me. My uncle would deliver me to the airplane, the stewardess would put me in a first class seat and I'd fly to Saudi Arabia where they would meet me, you know, like it's only like an hour and a half flight away. So I was in in the airline, blood airlines were in my blood from a y- very young age, and I dreamed of becoming a flight attendant because I'm also a photographer, and I wanted to see and, and photograph the world, which I did. 
So in 78, I applied. As soon as I turned 20 years old, I applied to Pan Am and uh, TWA, and I got hired by TWA right away. So on my 20th birthday, I became a flight attendant. And you were, you were shooting back then? Yeah, I started in high school right after I met, you know, who, uh, oh, I shouldn't say his name. Uh, he's still alive, and he's a pastor now. <laughs> well, we'll scratch that. <laughs> no, that's okay. Just that's edited. okay. I didn't say I'll anything. just put it in reverse. I, I'm, sure he's pr- <laughs> I'm sure he's proud of that moment, but... Um, he, uh, um, I became a photographer like right there in, in high school. I took the very first photography class ever offered in a high school in the United States as part of an art curriculum. You know, I lament the fact that I also didn't take shop or home ec or something like that. Those were the other electives. Well, I was I went to Catholic high school, so I had to take <coughs> religion classes when I actually wanted to take a photography class. Oh, okay. So there you go. <laughs> Oh, I didn't know you went to a religious high school. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't super hardcore. Like, we didn't have to wear uniforms. But that's the, right. the, the shitty thing is, you know, your electives end up becoming the religious class. So well, I was super Christian class. until high school. And then we, there was this a group that met every Monday night called Young Life, you know. T- oh, that's, that sounds insidious. Like, sometimes those Christian groups, like... Tambourines I, and little yeah. contests. And, and, and they, want, they liked me because I, I was... Until then, I was serving mass like everywhere in Lebanon. I would serve mass every day, um, and I was super religious, super Christian. And then um, the guy who was in charge of this young life thing, he saw me as a candidate for an even be- you know more important thing. And they had this Wednesday morning prayer meetings that I would have to get up at five. And my father was happy because my father's also my mom. My parents were both religious, and he was happy to drive me really early before school started, and I would go there and. One time they were discussing baptism, and I kind of raised my hand and I said, uh, whatever his name was, I said, um, let's say I'm born in the Amazon, and I've never heard of Jesus, and I, we, we don't even know white people, but I live exactly the way Jesus prescribes, the Bible and whatever. He says, nope, sorry, if you're not baptized, you're not going to go to heaven, regardless of how good you are a person or a human being. I'm like... F this shit, yeah. you know, it's like, is yeah. really God that exclusive that he, that you have to go through some, you know, ritual with water in order to, you know. God is only that exclusive for people who want to paint it like that. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you know, religion, there's definitely, I don't think it's all bad. There's definitely like religious people, like, I guess, like liberation theology, where they kind of are progressive and trying to live it. But I do think. Obviously, a lot of times it's also just used as a control mechanism and, you know, us versus them or whatever, right. you know. I mean, it's not even about religion at that point. They just use religion. Well, I'm know? still very respectful. I love when I travel through Europe and places, I love to go to big churches and cathedrals and I even sit through a mass. Like, I, I like the ritual. I like the whole thing. But that that what he said to me that day, it, I mean, he could have said it in a different way without dogma, without like absolutism well that's what i'm saying like there's sides of it where obviously it kind of plays into those stereotypes of why people hate on religion right you know there's always going to be those people obviously but that's yeah that's that's crazy that yeah because i i kind of met you i think even before windows like were you doing something like indochine or i can't remember was something like downtown no i was doing a lot of these little bars my first gig here after i moved after leaving kodak no i was still working with kodak i had a friend that i went to college with her boyfriend was in a band called soul coughing okay yeah which at the time was a really big college circuit band 
they were really good, very poetic. What was his name? I can't remember. M. Doherty or whatever. Yeah. I forget the Do, guy's Do, name. Do, Doey, they call him? No, <laughs> I can't remember now. But anyway, so, and uh, she said, hey, why don't you, because she and I used to DJ together at the college radio station in Rochester. And we even did like this three-hour special on Fellini movie music. And uh, so she goes, my boyfriend is playing in this gig at, at Wetlands. Would you like to play records in between sets? So I took some of this crazy, easy listening stuff. I think I had like Esquivel or something with me. And uh, said, before, sure. before it was reissued and any of that stuff. Oh, yeah. No, this was really like before there, there was we before we even called it the lounge thing. Yeah, probably. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even though lounge was a misnomer because people were dancing their asses off at this at these parties. But anyway, so I played Esquivel. Next thing you know, there's like six people at the DJ booth. Like, who is this? What are you playing? You know, like. So all the stuff that I had collected that was supposed to be easy listening was never really played in nightclubs. So once you put it on these amazing sound systems, this was great vinyl. It was beautifully pressed, high quality vinyl, beautiful recordings. I mean, yeah, was that was whole Escarole's thing was like arrangements and stuff. But it wasn't just Esquivel. I had yeah, I no, took I mean, a lot. Of, I mean, I also took like Diamanda Galas with me and stuff like that, which nobody played in nightclubs. Right, know? right. So every time I put on a record, it'd be six different people saying like, "Here's my card. I have a bar. You know, I w- w- would love for you to come and play." And that kind of started me going. I was working at Kodak during the day, <clears throat> uh, pushing digital cameras and stuff like that early on. And at night, I would put on these crazy clothes I'd buy when I was a flight attendant. I'd buy in Las Vegas thrift stores or <laughs> New Orleans with these big 1970s sunglasses and stuff like that. And I would DJ these little bars in the village, basically. So Wetlands was one of them. Bardot was another place. Bardot, yes. Yeah, Bardot so. was the spot that yeah. had a lot of stuff like that. That's right. Right. Because I think uh, Franco from Vampiros Lesbos was playing there for yeah, a while. Yeah, he was. In the West Village. Yeah, yeah, and then... But you also were playing in the... Um, the bathroom at the tunnel. That came after the World Trade Center. Oh, that came after the World yeah, Trade Center. Yeah, they saw okay. the success of the World Trade Center and they wanted me to come and... Because we, you know, you and yeah, I... Yeah, I was and, DJing and, uh, there as well. Ursula exactly. 1000 and a lot, and Jack Fetterman and these guys. You know, we put Lounge on the map in New York City. So that was the big year of the... And I had like in every magazine, uh, New York, uh, The New Yorker and everything, did little articles on that. Right, the right. year of the slip dresses when girls went out and you know and their slips and with makeup and everything and it was really great. Um, so there was a little we did a little movement that was a blip on the screen of the music scene and I, I hope to do a book because I have photographs of everybody, you know, whether it's here or in. in yeah, Europe, you and, have like I mean I was just looking. Uh, you have like an entire library of photo books. So you basically uh, just. You said you make one like once a month almost, or how yeah, does it work? My archive is over a million photographs, um, and it's all organized. It's all by date, um, lots of tags. I mean, uh, if anybody wants to come and spy on anybody, they just come to me and they find their <laughs> names. Um, Classic. Or find out about their history. You can delete that part. Anyway. <laughs> So I'm always researching through my archive for for new projects, and um, there's so many that I just can't handle all of them because I'm also st- I'm still creating work, I'm still photographing. Although this past year during the pandemic, I was mostly like doing uh, videos of an empty city uh, with my iPhone. It was really amazing. Yeah, yeah, I guess it really was like some ghost town. Oh type my of God! Vibes. Yeah. It is kind of crazy. March of last year, I remember walking up to Sixth uh, Avenue to the village, and there was not. 
I didn't cross one person on Sixth Avenue. That's wild. For twenty minutes. That's wild. I have I have videos. Yeah, that is like some uh, Omega Man shit. This, I this mean, that's something that never ever happens in New York at any time of the day. This pandemic is uh, wild. But now, like the last weekend, I went out with some friends just to walk along the room. It's like, oh my god, it's like the opposite. It's like bring back the pandemic. <laughs> Or bring back the lockdown. It was just crazy. You couldn't even cr- in Chinatown. I couldn't even cross the street. It was so many people. Yeah, that's crazy. But that, we were looking through some of your <coughs> books, and that's what I thought was kind of funny. Is uh, I remember you telling me about that there was where you were DJing because DJing in the bathroom at Tunnel was this kind of huge room, you know. Yeah. So then, basically, you DJed in this sort of place that had like a, a door. That kind of, uh, it was like one of those half doors. Yeah, or Dutch doors. They Dutch call doors. Them. Yeah. So then you were just taking pictures of people passing by. And again, what year is this? Is it like late 97, 98. Yeah. So well, you preceded me there. I don't know. Yeah. What... See, I was there like uh, 96, I think. And I don't know the story of like, why did they let you go and they hired me or what? Or you just didn't want to do it anymore? Or I don't know. I think they were kind of, ho- <coughs> they, it, they were just hosing. They, I think they hosed me out of some money. Like oh, owned, right, yeah. Like Peter Gation is his rep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guy that was working for him. Yeah, they owed me money, too, in the end. Um, yeah, I think they were kind of... And I, I just think they were. They kind of were booking me haphazardly. There was a few times I was playing in another room, like a back room or Right. Well, the tunnel had, what, how many dance floors? They had, like, four or five rooms, I no, think. No, they so. had way more. I think it was 15 different dance floors in that part. It that was, was really massive. Amazing. The tunnel was yeah. really... I a mean, huge club. Even on when the place was empty, like when I went there to to meet with them, and it crossed the main dance floor. It, it took you three minutes to cross the main dance floor. Yeah, no, it was massive. Where it what's his massive. name? We used to DJ um, Junior Junior Vasquez. Yeah, yeah. And he had and his then, own club back behind his DJ booth, where like Madonna would hang out and all these. Yeah, I well, I was a cocktail waiter there for a minute, so I was there when you know Junior had his big opening. Yeah. And uh, because I think, what was it, Sound Factory, he had like built up his rep DJing there for a while. Right. So right. then he came to the tunnel and it was like a big thing, like we're going to have every room as Junior. You know? who, who was the other big house DJ at the time? They were like rivals. Um, I can't was, think. was it Danny Tanaglia? I forget who it was. Danny Tanaglia, that's it, yeah. But um, yeah. But yeah, like it was pretty crazy. Like they piped, you know, there was like, I remember... Working that night, I was like, whatever, cocktail and some random VIP room. But, like, uh, there was, like, the whole place was packed, which held, like, I don't know, 5,000 people, maybe more. And there was, like, it was pouring rain, and there was thousands of people outside <laughs> trying to get it. That was the pull that <coughs> he had at that time. It was crazy. Well, you know, New York City nightclubs, which I I have tonight as from being a nightclub DJ. But I yeah. didn't do it at a night where I was working. I was uh, at Glasslands in Williamsburg one day, and I was under the big speakers and the DJ there one night. I don't know if she did it on purpose or she th- she turned no that way. slider way up, and I my ears like felt like they were going to explode. And I've since tinnitus since then. That's so I, awful. Yeah. I mean, it happens. That's the thing about tinnitus. There's no <coughs> real cure for it. It just kind of comes in and out. Right. Yeah. Um, but so I don't go anymore to loud places because I don't want to jeopardize any more hearing loss or right. Um, but yeah, 19, I was going, I was a regular at the garage in the 80s. I was a regular at the limelight. I, I'm not too, uh, Studio 54, I'm not, I'm not part of the cocaine culture. I didn't like that. I was more right. mushrooms and pot, so <laughs> um, garage was ideal for that. Um, yeah. 
Garage was amazing. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's one of those things that you obviously hear a million stories a little bit before my time, you know. Well, the garage, they didn't allow photography. Although now more than ever, you see things pop up if you Google it. Really? You'll see a few pictures in there. Of course, one of the most famous parties ever was Keith Haring's birthday that took place at the garage and everybody was there. And that was highly photographed, I think. Well, you know. Uh, Andy Warhol was there, so he was taking a lot of pictures. Right, right, right. So that was the the party of nightclub history, basically. That was the most amazing one. So um, I don't know what's going on with with nightclubs now. I don't. I, I've heard from people who have gone recently, like as l late as last week, where people are waiting hours in line to get into some of these places. Uh, people have just breaking out after this this lockdown yeah i mean it's kind of a weird thing i mean we're recording it what is it the 22nd tonight uh june but uh it's just one of those things where uh i guess you know enough people have gotten vaxxed and the numbers have gotten down that i mean i just started being like all right maybe i'll start djing out but as i was saying it's also kind of mixed because I still don't necessarily want to promote a party where people are going to possibly get sick, and that's right. part of the reason I was holding off from right. DJing because it's just it's a weird thing, you know. Even like seeing some parties in whatever the fall of last year, there was some party in Tulum or something where a bunch of like more Burning Man people went down there and then came back to New York and were getting other people sick. And it's like, why? It just seems like fucking yeah. ludicrous. Like, why well, are you doing this? But I mean, I understand like missing going out and missing partying, of course, but I don't know. It's kind of a tricky question. I'm sort of like, we'll see how it goes, I guess, you know? Definitely. I mean, I'm, I'd be curious. Of course, I'd be happy to put in a pair of good earplugs and go and see what's going on because I'm curious as to the evolution of this and how, if during the pandemic, things have changed, you know? You and I have both been nightclub DJs for more, you know, for, for for a very long time. Do you have any like ideas of what the future of nightclubs would be like? Uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, I know they were trying to build this nightclub in Detroit. I think the Trezor people, where they were going to have like a hostel and a whole like sort of thing, and then the nightclub attached. So, I mean, maybe you have something because like. It's sort of like you hear about those clubs like Bergheim in, in Berlin and whatever where people are literally partying the entire weekend. It kind of puts New York to shame. So I don't know. I feel like maybe you have some sort of extended experience or something where you right. could go to your ho hostel within that sort of in the nightclub concert and then come back and sort of like go back and forth. Almost sort of like, like turning it like a little bit of a festival or something. Because okay. I think that's why people like to go to festivals. I mean, it's one of the reasons I like going to them is because if you're going to a festival like Burning Man, then there are sound systems going on 24-7. So then you could set your schedule. Like there's times where I've been, you know, ended up crashing, waking up at like midnight or two in the morning and you go out and go to sun you know, sunrise parties and whatever. So, you know, maybe you can have that within more of like a nightclub, like within a city. You don't have to drive middle of nowhere, you right. know, where everything is also set up. So there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be provided. Like if you have like a permanent space that you can have an experience right. like that and take a cab to your hotel room or whatever, you know, so... Well, during the, the sort of this last year and a half of me being at home a lot and working on some of my projects, I 
I haven't signed on to streaming yet. Um, I don't know if I ever will. I have an, s enough music to probably last me another 35 years of nonstop listening. And I like listening to some of the stuff that I really like listening to. But I also do a lot of exploration on YouTube. I still haven't gone into the Spotify thing or the, some of the other streaming. But you've probably been researching. Is there, good, is there a different new sound coming out or is it still pretty much... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's always there's always variations. I mean, I think uh, people are incorporating a lot more. They're looking outside because it's, there's almost like that kind of Western perspective, you know. So then, and I hate the term world music per se, but I mean, you know, it, I do feel like there's other sounds coming from other parts of the globe that are kind of mixing in and kind of, you know. Okay. So you kind of have different rhythms, basically kind of like coming into even say classic dance music genres like house or techno or whatever but it's kind of you know then it becomes like blurred a little right. bit because you're kind of mixing indigenous rhythms from other places but also putting a more modern spin on it and the music you know it's not always just coming from okay here's a dj from london or the u.s or germany and then you have people from other countries also kind of coming up so to me that's the stuff that I think is interesting and always worth looking towards because it kind of like breaks this kind of hegemony of like what dance music has been for many years. Right, but even then what you're describing sounds like it's still a continuation of something that was started a long time ago. Is there, there's nothing like that goes, that turns your heads go like, I mean, I remember the first time I was in a disco in Washington, D.C., 1974, 75 maybe, and you had been hearing things like, rock the boat, don't rock the boat, baby, you know, and that was considered disco. And then suddenly, love to love you, baby, Madonna Summer comes on. That turned the dance world on its head. That was, what's his name, Giorgio Moroder. Yeah, Moroder. And that, you, you, right then and there, you knew something different was happening. And that's what I'm asking. Is there something that makes you go, go like, or the, the other time that happened to me was the B-52s. I was in a bar in Paris, in a nightclub in Paris, the year that Planet Claire came out. Planet Claire comes on the sound system, and I'm like, wait a minute. What is this? You know, like, that first well, know, yeah, the intro I mean, that they had. Is there something that's happening now that makes you turn around and say, this is really different? Well, I mean, I think it's just, you know, the way that, that records are produced now. So that's records. Are they really producing records? Well, I mean, produce the production of music. Okay. You know, not, I mean, yeah, but they still make records. You right, know? Right. I mean, records have kind of become more, I think, of a, a boutique thing a little bit just because. A, a what thing? I'm sorry. A boutique. It's like, oh, okay, it's yeah. not like people are, you're assuming that you're going to sell because people were only playing on turntables like pre-CDJs or anything. So that was the format. Right. So if you wanted to have something bust out and go to DJs, you know, but obviously with like controllers and the price of vinyl, you know, that it's 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 much it's more expensive to produce and therefore they become more expensive. And so and then you could just get files or download them. So it's in a way it kind of makes it a little bit more um you know, whatever, democratic or open for everyone to be able to play music. Be and then vinyl, even though, yeah, I still have tons of vinyl, obviously, and it's beautiful, but, like, let's say I wanted to keep up with every new thing I wanted to play on vinyl, 
I couldn't afford it because, you know, the price of records and all that stuff. So, and there's just so much, you know, again, like, you know, in terms of like sounds from outside the U.S. around the world, a lot of its stuff doesn't really get pressed on vinyl. So then if you're kind of a purist about format, you're actually missing out on a lot of music. And and, um, I was talking with someone, you know, for this podcast, my friend uh, Javier Sonido Martinez, that's his uh, handle. But, uh, you know, and he's based in Bolivia and he, he has like insane cumbia and all kinds of like even folkloric stuff from there. And just he has like really, really crazy, crazy records. So he's as hardcore record collector as anyone. Right. But he, you know, that's what he was saying, that you're kind of missing out if you just only because there's just still so much other stuff that just never even gets pressed on wax. Yeah, no, so. I'm, I'm not an, a that, vinyl purist. I and remember. I think that's some of the interesting stuff that is actually being made, like I said. that I, I tend to just look, in terms of newer stuff, either like new dance music variations, because they can produce records that um, they, sound, they sound better. They really do. Like, they just sound, you know, they can do, not better, but they can do stuff with compression and all the, you know, in terms of the plugins of, like, older dance music, it just smacks harder, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, like if, like, I love a lot of, like, old Raga Jungle stuff from the 90s, you know? But they were programming that on, like, Atari computers and stuff, you know? So think about that in, like, pre-Pro Tools or pre-Ableton or all this stuff. And so now they can make records that just, you know, like I said, it just, if you A-B them, especially on a bigger system, you know, they definitely, like, kick. So I feel like, and then, you know, you've had histories of music. But when so you compare it to a, a, a digital file or if, it, if it's written to a CD or something, it's the vinyl is still better. Is that what you mean by No, I'm, I'm just it? saying, like, the way the, the music is produced. I mean, there's records that are, like, you know, you can have something on vinyl, but it might be pressed shittily. So of course, it sound yeah. terrible. I've plenty of that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like you know, like one of my under favorite underground funk records, Twenty Four Karat Black. You know, but I even got an original years ago. But I mean, it's pressed super low. <laughs> it sounds like garbage. I mean, it's like a rare record and all that stuff. Yeah. So I mean, you sad. know, sad. That's sad. Yeah. So sometimes you know, getting a remastering or whatever, you know, even if it's digital. You know, it really, to me, it's like, how does it really sound? And right. yeah, like classic certain things, like a classic Soul 45 deep groove, it's going to sound great. Or a Blue Note 1500 series or those kind of records, of course, they're going to sound ridiculous. But right. not every record is pressed. So, you know, to just say across the board, okay, it's vinyl, it's going to sound better. It's, you know. I oh, know. I totally agree. No, I, I'm not like, I'm a language Sometimes, you know, the word Nazi. I'm a language Nazi. I love to, you know, some people say records, but also like on TV when they have a video recording of something and say, like, we've got the tape. Well, there's no tape. Nobody's using tape anymore yeah, to yeah, record yeah, video. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so anyway, but going back to the actual content rather than the format, um, musically, I'm I'm just curious to see where what the next thing is going to be. I mean, know? it's just, it's, I think it's just moving quicker. And I think things kind of come in and out, like sort of everything's in. Like, you know, for example, we're talking about the 90s in terms of like that lounge thing that popped up and Brazilian stuff was in for a while. I remember in New York, there was a bunch of salsa parties. Like these things kind of came in waves where people, but now I feel like because of the internet, everyone can just 
do all kinds of crazy research and find out about all this stuff that we were just digging around trying right. to find randomly it becomes like you have a lot of different things happening at the same time right. and then variations on that so you remember tipsy yeah tipsy i love tipsy i love tipsy i, love I still tipsy. listen to them regularly and um, i had the fortune of meeting them and not human i don't know if you remember not human he was the main guy in Tipsy. Yeah, I um, mean, uh, they got a lot of play in uh, at WFMU when that record came out, Trip yeah. to the Moon and the, the LP. Great. Yeah, I sample, actually so. happened to be in San Francisco around that time, and they were playing, and uh, I was, like, you know, visiting some friends, and I ended up just, not getting food poisoning, but I was, like, really <laughs> sick. And so all my friends went, and I'm like, I can't go. I'm just like, oh, really? No. So I missed seeing Tipsy. I played with them. I played with oh, them. really? Yeah. When, with, uh, they was, played at Windows on the World or where? No, no. There was a, a, a magazine at the time called Lounge Magazine. Um, started by these two twin brothers, and one of them was originally from the, the very original MP3 company. Uh, they created MP3, the format and everything. I can't think of his name right now. Um, but anyway, they had this party at the Encounter, which is the big Jetsons-like uh, structure, a restaurant in the middle of Los Angeles, LAX. Oh, right, <laughs> that, that that restaurant that they... Yeah, yeah. It, it's called the Encounter back then. The Encounter, um, right. I don't know if it's still called the Encounter, but it was the total perfect place for a lounge party. <clears throat> And so Jip Tipsy was there, and that's where I met Richard Cameron from Arling and Cameron. Yeah, Arling and Cameron. He was, was another, DJing that yeah. night, and um, that was really great. It was really great. It was a lounge party, one of the, the best ones. What was his name also? This crazy lounge DJ from L.A. that actually came and played at the Windows on the World. I can't think of his name now. but God, the things that we go through that we can't store them all. Yeah, I mean, it might be the weed for me, but uh, <laughs> it's it's a blur. I, I mean, you. I mean, that's the kind of the nice thing about photography. You, may, you know, it probably helps you to to remember certain things about these trips that you probably wouldn't have remembered if. But then you you know exactly. take the shots you exactly. Know? I'm going through the archive as memory memory jogs for a lot of these things. Unfortunately, I don't have a picture of my friend dancing in his gorilla mask. <laughs> to Frank Zappa. Well, maybe but, that's the inspiration. It's like I but, have to capture that. But that I will never forget. I mean, talk about culture shock. That really the shots a, that you miss, right? Yeah. I'm actually hoping to to write a book about all the photographs that I know I missed because either of equipment malfunction or not being bold enough to take that picture, you know, like because it it required either asking or interrupting something you know yeah i mean actually this is a question i wanted to ask you because you know you have that that book that we were looking at of um all the uh the bellies of um the uh <laughs> romanian the romanian like uh, uh street street market people and flea, they, flea market flea vendors market, yeah, yeah flea, and they they basically have big bellies but they pull up their t-shirt on purpose to show their belly yeah not, not big belly not just big bellies i mean massive bellies like really round bellies but it's kind of bizarre because they're almost like it's almost like bizarre pinup from hell because it was like let me show you my <laughs> big but i mean here's my question is like how do you you weren't even asking permission no it not seems at all, like no. it would be kind of a weird like here let me take a picture of you it almost would be like the person especially if you're a foreigner there would be like oh okay you're mocking me or something right well one of the first things people ask you as a young photographer is like or you ask your teachers like do you get you ask for permission well, 
yeah, that's nice. But the second you ask the permission, you lose that moment. Right. It becomes a pose right. versus just capturing somebody. I mean, it's like the, uh, some of the greatest photographers in the canon of photography, say Cartier-Bresson. I mean, he was known for the decisive moment. He was there and he knew where when to catch that picture so everything works well in that image it becomes a poem you know it becomes a visual poem of all the elements the graphics the movement the the moment the expression so as you go about i mean i remember the first very first time i asked somebody i was in paris and there was this beautiful boy sitting there waiting for the bus and i said can i take your picture i mean i had passed him by and i'm like going oh my god i really would love to photograph this kid it was like one of those iconic images and um, I was sweating. I'm like, go get it. You know, like, so I went back, I walked back like 10 feet and I said, excuse me, can I take your picture? And he smiled and I took his picture. So that, I remember the first time I really asked somebody. Uh, and then from then on, I just learned how to be discreet. You learn and with new technologies, new cameras that don't make sound and stuff like that, it becomes easier. Right, yeah, yeah, I guess with the click, everyone's like, yo, yeah. who just took my picture? Yeah, yeah. that's kind of funny, the, yeah. hearing the mechanics, basically. I did uh, two months in Vienna. I was in Vienna for two months, and I, every day I would get on the uh, public transportation, the trams, the subways, the buses, whatever, and I would sit, because they had facing seats, and I would have this camera that was set, and looked like a 35-millimeter camera, but it also did really great video. There were no blinking lights or anything, and I would put that on my lap and video. I have like over 70 hours of people on subway uh, on the public transportation of Vienna, and they're hysterical what people do when, when they don't think anybody's looking at them. <laughs> what, you, what year is that? Uh, that's probably about 2011, 12, something like that. Not that long ago, maybe about seven, eight years ago, I think, yeah. When you, when you have, when I'm looking at that array of books, like how far does it go back? Like when, when is, when is the first sort of like, or that you started chronicling, like, I'm going to take these photos from this year and, and 74, 74. Yeah. So but pretty I also, early on. I also collect vernacular photography. I have millions of photographs that I buy at flea markets here and stuff like that. So I do projects with those. I have a book. I'm really fond of this square format of the 1960s and 70s from the Kodak Instamatic cameras. Right, right. And I have a, an amazing collection of that stuff. And I've made a book called Was This When America Was Really Great? Uh, and they're really hysterical. So I just take these photographs and I, of course, I select the ones that I really like, some of the best ones. And they tell me the story. So, and I like to take people and put them in, in these stories where they are like normal people not what you expect them that we're living in 2021 and we know so much more than people in 1963 did no in 1963 people gave each other blowjobs you know women gave blowjobs to men men gave you know but we don't think of people as having been humans back then it's almost because they're they almost seem innocent right like I have but this one still photograph. All kinds of crazy shit going on. Of I course. like to put. I like to take them out of the stereotype of what right. the image would show. Like I have this one photograph of this black couple in a pool, and she's kind of standing on the steps, and he's he's holding her, and my little story that I make up that whatever name I gave them, uh, that he loved her so much, but he couldn't understand why she loved Joni Mitchell so much. Like you could never, you wouldn't imagine that a black woman of an Afro from 1963, or like let's say, no, this was more like in the 70s, would be listening to Joni Mitchell, you know. And I wrote that she would be considerate enough that if when he was around, she would put on headphones to listen to her album 
for the roses or blue and that she wore it out so much she had to buy three copies of it eventually because of this all she listened to. You know, so like I like to take people out of the stereotype that they, you know, that she wasn't only listening to Diana Ross. She was listening to Joni Mitchell. She loved Joni Mitchell. You right, know, so right. It's a great little book, actually. It's uh, of all these anecdotes that are told by the photo itself. And I just saw, like, you have all these, uh, this pinup thing, if you want to talk about that. You, you basically took, because you were saying growing up uh, gay that, you know. Well, I wasn't gay the time I was before I was gay, before I realized what it was. But I knew I was interested in looking. I would look at Sears, men's, Sears catalogs men's underwear section. And that was the only, I'm talking about when I was like eight or nine years old. Right, right. And the only magazines you saw on, on the magazine stands were basically Tenops. everything was women. Right. Even news magazines, everything was women on the cover. Not necessarily news magazines, but everything was women. That's what sold magazines. Um, so now I'm, I've gone back and I've found things on the internet where I can download these photographs of Middle Eastern magazines from the 1960s and 70s. And basically it's all women on the covers, but mostly, mostly Western women from Hollywood and, and you know, Western films or singers. And I'm also finding images from gay muscle magazines from the same era and incorporating the pictures of the men with the women as like somehow, but they're somehow like I'm finding the images that relate to each other. Right, right. You're finding things and kind that, of pairing work, it, but yeah. it still has the... Um, they're very funny in a way. Know, the yeah. Arabic uh, writing. The Arabic writing, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like some sort of lost, not, I mean, it doesn't exist, you create it, but it's almost okay. like some weird lost 60s, almost like something for everyone magazine yeah, <laughs> with gay it, and straight or something. It's putting into you know? concrete imagery things that we fantasized about you know like yeah right. there's that woman but behind her i'm looking at this guy and you know <laughs> muscles and he's bulging or whatever so it's like yeah <laughs> it's kind of it's hilarious though yeah you're creating like a it's like an alternative reality in a way and that's what this book about what when was was this when america was really great these were all the stories it's not what was in the picture but there's an, a reality that comes from telling an anecdote and putting it into a, a contemporary context. You know, people were giving you blowjobs in ancient Greece, you know, and long right. before that. So right, right. it's nothing new that, you know, sexuality is so taboo in our culture. Right. And it's a, 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 to me, it's, it's the cause of so many problems. Yeah. Know? Without sexuality, we wouldn't be here. Right, right, right. You know? Well, I think there's, an, there's kind of a controlled element to it you know where it's like we want to kind of control people to be straight we want to control it's sort of again i think it's even beyond sexuality is an aspect of patriarchy well i have some radical theories that the people who want to control it are the ones with small penises you know like <laughs> again that's just it's not exactly what i mean what right. i mean is that people who themselves have issues with sexuality have right. gotten into positions of power and they're, they're uncomfortable with sexuality. And therefore, it creates a certain atmosphere where you want to control that so you don't come out as being inadequate yourself. Or even just, you know, I think, who is it? Caitlin Johnson, uh, this writer, was talking about how, I, I'm sort of paraphrasing, so if I butcher this, but it was something to the effect of like how so much stuff in society is has been kind of set up to kind of control, to have men being able to choose, which, you know, in reality, if, if it was just set up like 
equally. It would probably be women choosing in terms of like in Absolutely. terms of like straight sex. You know? we're, we're getting so, there. We're getting no, there. No, and so what I think is kind of interesting is that there's so many things like, for example, keeping women from being able to make real money. So then, if you're someone who has money, you're in this leverage position of right. you might be some well, old, you it's know, changing. fat person with some like hottie because of things that are set up in society that kind of almost go against the grain of what is the core of sexuality. Right. Well, patriarchy you know? is under threat. You know, it's like, it's about time. I got to go pee again. I don't know yeah, no, it's fine. What else did I want to talk to you about? I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, well, I mean, you know, we can We were get talking about that Great America book and uh, yeah. s- relig- small penises. And <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, we can get into as much or a little of this as possible, but I know you had the book on um, on Lebanon, I guess. When when did you shoot that? That was in uh, the early 90s? Well, Lebanon started experience having wars in the mid-70s, basically. And I was already here in the United States, and then it got really bad, so I didn't go back for, like, f- till 92. So, like, at least f- 17 years I didn't go back. I still had family there. My father was here, my family was here, but like cousins and friends and things like that. So as soon as things got settled a little bit and there was no more bombing or anything like that, I went in 1991 and, and 1992 as well. And and there you have a book of that too. You shot yeah. a bunch of stuff. Uh, a friend of mine took me around. I wouldn't dare go downtown by myself, but the whole downtown was completely just devastated. I mean, you we've seen films with what happened with with Berlin and with places in Europe and the and you know Dresden and during World War II and uh, whatever with the aerial bombing in Beirut was just like that it was just there was not a single building that was not devastated I mean that and that must be insane to see in person because obviously we've always seen those photos but uh yeah to be there that must be haunting it was it was I mean when you have major buildings you know you've got plant trees coming out of them and plants and uh some places water was still coming out of the building like the pipe just never stopped and things like that it was just really amazing and no people around once in a while you'd see somebody um but we see that today we see that in gaza we see it in uh we saw what happened in iraq we you know it's just unbelievable what people do I mean, between the u.s and israel you know lots of fun yeah well i mean it's also Anybody who's got this capability will do it to somebody else that they feel superior to. That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I mean, it's just, yeah, especially in terms of the Middle East, you know, it's just like so much of it is almost like some old school crusade shit. Like it really just goes back to some, you know, and they could say, oh, it's a religious thing or whatever. But it's really to me, it's just Western imperialism, white supremacy. It's just you look different than us. We don't, you know, we, right. can, we can control you. We want your shit. Get off the land, whatever, you know. I mean, it's as old-fashioned as time, but I think as time moves on, and hopefully this is happening more and more, it seems like it is a little bit, people are kind of waking up that, yeah, this isn't really a good look for the world. I don't know. Well, you know, the the crux of the matter right now is the environment. If we don't have an environment, we don't even have. I mean, people, it'll, it'll get worse and people will fight more for whatever resources. Well, yeah, why, they're already talking about, like, water. You yeah. know, they're already mapping that out, that yeah. water is going to be a major resource, you know. It is already. It yeah. is either not enough of it or too much of it. Yeah. You know, some places are going to be buried underwater 
and some places are going to be just no water. They won't be able to survive, and that's going to be calamitous. I mean, I don't know if the if the if the Colorado River dries up. I mean, not right now. Well, uh, yeah, because the the Southwest they're projecting it to be like the hottest in oh yeah hundred years or whatever. Lake Mead is gone. There's yeah, not, Lake Mead is like yeah. Those photos of Lake Mead, it's like I guess the the has tall as a Statue of Liberty that low right like hundreds of feet right lower than yeah, it no, should be. I, and if that keeps going i mean it's, if it's not re- replenishing i don't know what they're gonna do yeah i mean las vegas that's that's their source of water yeah that's, that's right. not that's, that's not right. a small city that's a that's the, the until about a 10 years ago and i don't know recently but that's been the fastest growing city in the world but imagine a place that was that make itself feasible because of gambling you know, that's the whole thing, too. It's kind of like there's, if you really want to, like, get into religion, this is kind of sort of, a, uh, you know, what do you call it? An, uh, Capitalism? No, <laughs> it, it, it's called, it's your comeuppance, you know, kind of thing. Like, you know, thou shalt not gamble, thou shalt not have sin and whatever, and they're getting punished. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> kidding, but I'm just saying, and, and sort of, well, it's if more you look like at it systems. in biblical terms and kind of this kind of this whole big thing of, retribution or whatever i'm but no it's the truth the reality is this is it's it's a huge problem it's a huge problem yeah and people that keep building in places where they know there's going to be like i mean i have a friend whose whose house got destroyed every year in north carolina you know cape hatteras it's like and then they go back (laughs) you know they build and the next year more hurricanes come and they go back you know it's like get out of there yeah you know it's uh i don't know humans are crazy yeah, humans are pretty insane. It's it seems like you know there's, I don't know. Like I was just saying as we were talking earlier, it just seems crazy, especially as you get older. Like wow, this is the world we live in. You know, like, you know, it's kind of funny. Like we're obviously party people, so sometimes there's this aspect where it's like, okay, I didn't get like a, you know, corporate job per se, and you know, I'm not like as adult as other people. But then, I had the corporate job. Though. No, but I'm just saying like. Uh, these are the adults that run the world. This is the adults that, you know, this is the world we live in that's run by quote-unquote adults. It's like, right. what the fuck kind of world is this? Right. It's kind of wild, you know, in, in not a good way. Well, I mean, it I makes mean, me very angry. When you honest. live in a system where you get compensated for basically making more money, not for making the place safer or right. better or prettier or smells nicer, for more money. That's the bottom line. I mean, that's why there's a term called the bottom line. And the bottom line has been for a very long time. It's about money. Nothing else matters. That's the first thing, you know. Like, um, so as long as that's the bottom line, we're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like you kind of have to evolve out of these systems. But then the problem is, is that the system that you're were involved in, you know, obviously is trying to hold on to. Right. Whatever they can hold on to for as long as they can. So it's, you know, that's why people, a lot of people, it's like the American empire in decline, which is almost kind of dangerous because as it's in decline, it might lash out more and more to kind of, of hold on to. Of course. And that's what makes it kind of dangerous. Of course. You know. Well, just last week, there was an article in the New York Times, and I'm surprised that n- even in the comment section, nobody said anything, and I did, but it never got published because... I have a whole series of things that I put in comments in New York Times. They never get published. Well, fuck the New York Times, but it's all good. But I anyway, it was a story about somewhere in the Southwest we were talking about where the water shortage is so bad that this, the municipality had made, 
issued a bunch of documents to help the people cope. But what were they giving them in plastic buckets? They had all these literature that are giving people how to cope with water shortages, whatever. They're giving to them in plastic buckets. Come on. Couldn't you do canvas bags or something made out of bamboo or paper carton bags? Plastic buckets, which is part of the reason why we're in the hell we're in, because of the, of the, there's a whole continent of plastic floating in the Pacific Ocean. It's all part of that thinking. You know, if you're thinking about something that is in, regarding the environment, don't use plastic buckets. Yeah. Well, I mean, an another thing that you don't really hear about is that, you know, the, the biggest polluter on the planet is like the U.S. military. But then because we live in this society where that's all, you know, military is good and we're a strong force, that then these things kind of get sidelined. So I think there's just, you know, there's a lot of misinformation. Like, I think, like, the sort of liberalism, neoliberalism, they love to talk about the individual, like the individual responsibility, like... You need to, we're in this predicament because enough people are not putting soda cans in the recycling bin. When it's really like you look at most of the pollution and it's from corporations, it's from, right. so, but, so by th throwing it on more like individual choices, it becomes like a bait and switch with what the real problem is. Right. But you know what? We're, we're talking here for a podcast and we're speaking into microphones that require that corporations make it like this is not something that we you and i can do we've come to the point where even the fight i mean what's her name greta thunberg she doesn't take a, f a plane because of against you know whatever but she takes a sailboat right well the parts for that sailboat were flown in thank you very much you cannot avoid well you're being part of where we are what you can do is you make your best as an individual and that itself also propagates you know, throughout. Uh, as you noticed, well, I do have a bottle of soap in plastic, but I stopped getting soap in plastic. I use bar soap. You know, it's like, it's just it does the job. I'm doing everything I can. America, the United States of America, a lot of people want us down. They want us out. You know, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's them together, we can't let our guard down. Because they will come and get us. They are already trying to I get don't us. Know. I don't know about that. They're man. already <laughs> They already. W I mean, we want them down and they want us down. Yeah, so. but I don't, I don't really I, subscribe to that. It's not that I'm, I'm that, saying though. let's militarize even more or whatever, but there's got to be a way of doing all of this that we don't, we're not approaching diplomacy the way we should, you know, we still mistrust each other. We, won't, we don't want the other guy because if the other guy gets stronger than us, they'll come and get us. Well, they, but I think that's a very kind of almost American thing. And that that in itself is almost some like Dr. Strange Lovian thing to justify all this whole military machine. When honest, honestly, it to me, in my opinion, it's a lot of projection like Russiagate or, you know, all the sort of things that are being written about about China, let's say the Uyghur population. I mean, there's no evidence of it. It becomes projection. It's like they're running slave camps in 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 Xinjiang or whatever. You know, I can never pronounce that right. But basically, it's like no, we're the country with the biggest prison population, and we have prisoners working for basically pennies. It's you know, like we're the ones that installed Yeltsin that did way more than Russia buying some Facebook ads that they that can't even prove that either. 
So it becomes like, again, it, to, to me, it's not a both sides problem. Like they're going to get us if we don't get them. The problem is Western imperialism, specifically right. the U.S. They're the ones. And it what what this whole pl- blame game is, it's the oldest trick in the book, just like with Zionism, is that everything that they're accusing other people of so that, you know, people get distracted by that, they're actually doing it. You know, oh, like Hamas uses human shields. No, Israel actually is documented taking Palestinians and using human shields. I mean, it's so it's just, yeah, I don't know. I, I, that's to me part of the problem is just like understanding what the problem is. It's not this both sides thing. It's not quote unquote Chinese imperialism. It's bullshit. <laughs> there is, you know, the there is one major imperial power that's the main problem in the world. You know, which I feel like, especially if you're in America, then even though it kind of goes against all this corporate media, you have to kind of like, you know, seek alternative media and not be kind of brainwashed by all this stuff and basically take a stand with those countries. Like, I think you should be supporting China because think about the amount of bullshit that's being printed every day. And then that kind of like relates into an uptick in like Asian American hate crimes. Because, you know, these reputable sources like the New York Times or the Washington Post are printing complete garbage bullshit stories. They're just trying to see what sticks. It's like, you know, the Uyghur thing becomes the new WMD. It's just another excuse to, like, go to war and this and that, you know. Now, I have a friend who uh, uh, I was having dinner with last week. She's ethnic Chinese but from Malaysia. And she... The, the subjects of the Uyghurs came up, and she got really upset. She goes, you're only listening to American media. She started. She says to me, go find Arabic websites, news sites, and see if any of them are, are, are reporting about it. They report about everything. They're not reporting about this, and they're Muslim people. You, know, you would think that they're going to be... But then again, there's all sorts of politics into everything. I mean, why aren't the Arab countries standing up for Palestine? It's all about the bottom line, really. It's well, because some of those are just like kind of like Saudi Arabia's, you know, that was kind of set up. You know, I think the British kind of like handed that family the power and then they're kind of like have been a staunch, you know, Western, Western ally yeah. for a long time. And then you have I mean, again, this is not. Stuff I'm like super expert on, though I follow a lot of people that talk about. Did this you stuff. see the article on uh, MBS's uh, big two-month party on this island? But then he had to leave because the news media got a hold of it. No, I didn't. Oh my god! Yeah, it's like when they flew in 500 men, no, 500 models, supermodel models from all over the world. Like they call them models, but I don't think they're fashion models. They're other kinds of models. To entertain these like dozens of, of s- this, some of the wealthiest people in the world, you know, like but only men. But then as soon and he kept the, the, any press out, but somebody leaked out a, a phone video or something, and then he flew out. Yeah, I mean these people are kind of terrible. It almost be like even Egypt is also kind of like, you know, in in some ways they'll help out Gaza a little bit, or but for the most part. I don't understand why they blockade Gaza as well. It's like they because they're down because they want American weapons that kind of favor because they you know we also help install you know just like whatever Iran all these kind of coup attempts so we're always trying to like destabilize and kind of I mean they're trying to basically 
destabilize Syria, and okay. they they own a, they're basically occupying a third of Syria right now. And then they'll write articles about like, oh, Assad is really having a tough time feeding his own people. It's like, well, yeah, because you have some of the most crushing economic sanctions. Well, after Cu- you, look at Cuba. You know, we've had our grammar grammar alert. We always say we. I mean, I'm not part of the the, the we that does this kind of stuff. I'm completely not part but of the you, we, but the we US. say we. The U.S. Yeah, I mean, you. they say Cuba is like, look how terrible it is and everything. That's because they've had a U.S. pillow on its face for the last you know, 70 years or something. And, and again, this is this projection that like, oh, well, socialism doesn't work. Capitalism isn't perfect, but this is a system we're stuck with. But it's like, yeah, especially if you assassinate all the leaders and never let anything ever grow because of course if people start to kind of like figure out that oh in these systems everyone has housing people can get a job if they want people can go to school for free mm-hmm. you know like poor people can start to learn how to read and like you know china's lifted like something astronomical like 800 million people out of poverty i mean that's not again when you're talking about the bottom line they don't care if poor people die because that's not really part of the bottom line. And if you look at even the coronavirus... Well, look what happened here, yeah. No, it, it, things become very clear. Like, all these kind of, like, you know, really hyper, kind of capitalist Western countries have had insane amounts of deaths, you know? I mean, I think Brazil just, just <laughs> the crossed 500,000. We, we you, are the most, So you have yeah. the richest country on Earth with 600,000 deaths. And again, how does the media kind of handle it? They keep pointing like, well, what about this lab leak theory? They're literally digging up complete bullshit debunked no, stories. They've been debunked several times, and they're bringing it up again. <laughs> this is even like even today. The New York shit. Times said that shit. the pandemic is over. You know, as far as New York is concerned. Well, it, because in the Western world, that's what counts. Who cares about India? Who cares about yeah. these global well, countries? Well, they, they're reporting on all that stuff, but you can't use words like the pandemic is over. The pandemic literally means it's all over the world. That's why it qualifies as a pandemic versus as an epidemic. You know, so pandemic is not is and nowhere near over. When they're saying that in some countries they won't even get their first vaccine first vaccine till 2023. So the New York Times should not say the pandemic is over. But that's the thing is like all these corporate media mouthpieces, whether they're kind of portrayed as, okay, Fox News is the right and, you know, New York Times is left or center left. It's all it's all right wing. It's all the voice of the ruling class. You know, even The Guardian, which is supposedly more progressive. Terrible. All these people run complete bullshit stories. (laughs) That, you know, in many ways have to be coordinated with some sort of state department somewhere because it's just it's too much bullshit. Right. You know, and so that's part of the whole thing about, I don't know, that gets me very angry in the world is that because they use the kind of media to sort of brainwash people. So people think that these, you know, sources are legit. In fact, the whole fake news thing was sort of a great little, you know, operation of theirs because they're like, okay, well, we're the real news. Right. And that's yeah. like kind of like the classic shit. It's like that scene out of Inception or something where it's like we're going to do this thing where we're going to tell him, you know, that we're we that we're actually that that you know we're that someone's trying to hustle you, but not us. Even there's, though they're the hustlers, it's like it's kind of like this. Yeah, none of real this hustler none, none, hustler shit because of, they print so much bullshit. Like you know, Washington Post, like democracy dies in darkness. I mean, it's like comedy because they post so much bullshit. Yeah. 
they they it's like it's, it's not accidental. They're, they, it's not people, accidental. They sit in boardrooms and they talk about it. I'll be right back. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah, what we're talking. We have all these breaks that uh, will be edited. You may not even hear this part, but uh, you were talking about. Uh, yeah, why, I've had why, to, do, why do you, why why do people have to pee as they get older? Because that's actually been happening to me. You know, women too. tell their daughters things. You know, they tell them about things that are evident at some point in your life, you know, in your early teens, you're going to get this thing happen to you and they'll explain it and whatever. Men don't talk to this about this to their sons. They don't talk about like why at some point, like, but you don't have to anymore because now you, once I've discovered I had this condition that most men experience after the, in their forties and later, you start seeing posters everywhere that you never saw before. Isn't that weird? <laughs> that is funny. Or now you start seeing commercials about like these, buds that go to uh like four of them they'll go to the baseball game and one of them keeps getting up and excusing himself and going to you know to the bathroom and coming back over and over again well it's just it's just a uh biological thing you know we have this thing where at some age you start going to the bathroom peeing a lot more than than, than normal and it actually is and i don't only not go out because of t- clubs because of tinnitus i Many times I'll refuse to go somewhere like long car rides because, you know, I might have to pee and it's just annoying as hell. Right, right. And it's just a biological thing the way the uterus, you know, is a flaw in the design of, not the uterus, the, <laughs> the prostate, sorry. <laughs> da, da, da. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. I, I would never say there's any flaws in the uterus, but let somebody else say it who knows better than I do. But um, yeah, so uh, aging is a, is a very... Uh, a lot of people look at older people and they make fun of them or they don't want them around because of something or another. It's not something that people want. It just happens. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. the biology itself, I mean, this woman, that remarkable woman that had survived the, the Tulsa massacres, did you see her 107 years old in front of Congress reading her statement to them? Did you see it? No, I didn't. Oh, my God. She's 107 years old. She survived. She was at the massacre when these white supremacists went and burnt down what they call the Black Wall Street. Yeah, 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 no, of course. 107 years old, she, they rolled her in on a wheelchair and she was lucid, she spoke, she talked about uh, the massacre, vivid memories that she will never forget, her parents taking her out of the house and the place was on fire. They were actually little aerial bombing. Yeah, no, they were, they were, yeah, they were dropping Devastating. Bombs. So, you know, some people age better than others, and we really should be more aware of when somebody's walking slow on the street not to get all upset about it. Maybe they just can't walk any faster. Yeah, know? I guess that's a New York thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, people don't walk anywhere else. You know, like uh, when I used to go to L.A., I used to, you'd see one person on like these huge streets. You'd be driving with one, you'd see one person walking, and they would be walking funny. I don't know if that's because they're isolated and you don't see you just see a bunch of people are they just because they don't walk and they have a different kind of gait you know whatever like that so yeah so um yeah it, it is it is things that you you kind of deal with for sure and i guess you know it's sort of one of those things as you get older then obviously you have more of a perspective but it would be nicer if you know people can kind of have that perspective before they get old that's what I'm saying, and you're about to hit your half century, dude. That's right. Yeah, I know. I'm getting there. How you feeling? I it's it's uh it is interesting. It's interesting how I mean, like I said, I mean in general, I'm just I'm very angry at the world, but my own personal life is fine. I have a right. great life, so I mean sometimes that's what actually 
makes me angry because I think as the years go on, you kind of start to realize your privilege more and more, at least for me being whatever, white, straight, growing up in whatever, Southern California, not necessarily for money, but, you know, we weren't broke, you know, we had a house, my parents kind of got by, but that's, when you look at the rest of the world, you're doing a lot better than a lot of people on the planet, even if you're okay, we're like middle class or whatever, you know, you're still... So, yeah, I, I think sometimes, like, even the concept of partying and having fun, you know, which is sort of a part of our lives for many years, DJing and, right. and doing this stuff, is that, you know, and and also, again, being white, playing a lot of music that is from, you know, African-American origins and stuff. So that's you're literally making people dance from people that are then being persecuted. Absolutely. You know, and so it's sort of like, I don't know, it gives you kind of a perspective or hopefully does that it's like, you know, everyone should be able to go out and party and go out and have fun and just basically go out and live their life. I mean, that's why the stuff in terms of like Israel and Palestine, like Gaza, it just drives me crazy because it's just like, it's just so fucked up. Right. It's just so fucked up, you know, or just any of the stuff, police shootings and just you're basically keeping people from just being able to live their lives for what reason because these people have some whatever random small dick syndrome white supremacy type of thing like just ingrained in some like really really old school kind right. of toxic kind well, of things well nature know? itself is not just it's i watch these beautiful nature programs and they always have to have these violent 20 percent of the thing has to be violent and you see this actually beautiful... you know it's funny sometimes that's my my uh my wife who is you know vegetarian and she likes those programs but then it's like she kind of is like okay you know i don't need to see some right like, and then we getting ripped apart they must whatever. incorporate them and so the thing is that i'm getting to and we can wrap up with this is that you have a beautiful deer having just birthing this beautiful little fawn and it's the thing is not even moving yet and this big lion comes and eats it you know like no no not even a chance you know so like nature is is brutal nature is brutal we're supposed to be intelligent and know how to manage it and i think to a certain degree we do otherwise it would be much more chaos and much more violence there is some control but in the end it's we in this in this country in this culture we're raised to think that every generation should be better and have more than the previous one. We're spoiled, in a way. I mean, when we first came to America, I, have, I had the fortune to get out of a country that is now failing. I don't, I don't have to live there. But even there, they have slavery. They, they, bring, they import women from Sri Lanka and the Philippines. If you're rich, you can afford a Filipina woman because she post, evidently she's supposed to be cleaner and prettier than the Sri Lankan women. And if you're not rich, you have Sri Lankan maids. I mean, it's just a terrible system there. And they take their passports away. They don't let them out of the house for the most part. So I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm in a place where there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of faults. There's a lot of issues that need to be resolved. But we still have the cap capability to do it. But we also live in a place where we've been promised that with every generation, you ha you're better off than the one pre previous, even though the one previous was doing really well. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like this meme where it's like, you know, sort of, uh, it's like a cartoon of the world, like a world map where South America and Africa have been kind of dug up, and then Western Europe and America 
you know, that's where I'll like the stacks because I think part of the reason, and that's, you know, again, just as time goes on, it's just trying to have that perspective that, you know, part of the reason things are quote unquote good here is because our country <laughs> has, and other, you know, other Western powers have basically taken advantage of and of these other countries to sort of prop up our living scenario. And then you don't really hear about what we do to these other countries. So we? it's kind of like, it's it's just, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit of a fantasy land. I mean, even like, you know, for example, like even all the sort of pink washing that Israel does, like come to Tel Aviv and hang out on the beaches and have like a gay vacation or something like that. And, you know, just down the road, there's Gaza, the world's biggest open air in prison, you know? So it's kind of like, I well, don't know. I'm, I'm it's, glad hard, it's hard for me to kind of like, deal with just how full of shit the world is. I'm it's glad that even the media that we can be very critical of, uh, the mainstream media, of course, like Democracy Now! already said it so many times, but the reason a lot of Central Americans are coming here is because of what the CIA did to these countries in the 60s and 70s. These countries were democracies. They were voting for people. They selected socialist kind of leaning leaders and the CIA intervened and deposed all of them or murdered all of them or helped yeah. their people murder them and put in clients of the United States in there. And that's why these countries have failed. And that's they're coming here. And then you have Kamala Harris say, don't come. Herself, a daughter of an immigrant. Exactly. I couldn't believe Indian when she Jamaica. said that. Well, I mean, but that's the thing is that, you know, neoliberals are going to neoliberal. They're just, they're, they're part of the system. You know, it's like, of course, somebody like Trump is awful. But then, you know, so people are like, oh, well, we got to vote for Biden to get Trump out of office. You're not really thinking about even like why is was Biden even thrust upon us as the choice? And then beyond that, is he even really any better? There's 40 years of Biden doing all kinds of horrible shit, the crime bill, all this stuff. It's like you think he's going to get an office and change now and be progressive. It's kind of a joke, you know. Well, but anyways. <laughs> We can edit there, though. Um, thank you so much, man. My pleasure, Jim. It's great to see you. Let's, yes. let's get together more often. Maybe yes. we'll get a chance to DJ together again. Yes, let's do that, man. Absolutely. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.